Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, as I said, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 4. As we continue to make our way, we're going to look at the entire chapter. So allow me to read 1 Samuel 4 for us this morning, and then I'll take a moment to pray and ask for the Lord's help. So 1 Samuel chapter 4. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread... Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us! For nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. When the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out, When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now, Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod. 
saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Let's pray together. Father, we ask once again, as we ask every week, that you would be at work in us by the power of your word this morning. Father, we are gathered here as an unworthy people. We don't deserve any of the mercy and grace that you have shown us in our lives, even the mercy and grace you have shown us this very day. And so we are gathered here this morning pleading the blood of Jesus Christ. We are putting our full confidence and hope in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We are looking to him, and we are thankful that because of his finished work, you have graciously sent your spirit to dwell within us. And so, Father, we will ask every week, we will plead with you every week to be at work in us by the power of your spirit through the truth of your word. We're so thankful that you have spoken, that because you have spoken, we are not forced to somehow come up with our own imaginary God. We're not forced to create a God in our image. Instead, we can see who you are your character, your nature. And I pray that this chapter this morning would show us more of that truth, more of who you are, so that we might think of you rightly, so that we might relate to you rightly. And at the very same time, Father, I pray that it would reveal our hearts to us, that we would be warned this morning of the dangers and the consequences of pursuing sin and finding ourselves in darkness and unrepentance. So, Father, we pray that you would work in us for our good and for your glory. I pray that you would guide my words, that I would say only what is true of you and true of your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' worthy and glorious name. Amen. Well, most of you know, because I talk about it a good bit, that I enjoy playing basketball, grew up playing basketball. But because of that, I've uh, endured a number of ankle injuries over the years. I've had more ankle sprains than I can count. In college, tore ligaments in one of my ankle, and they didn't know it for a couple of weeks, and then I still couldn't walk, and then they finally put me in a cast. I don't think it's ever been the same since. And then years after that, I'm playing with our kids outside, and I used to have a good ankle, and then that ankle <laughs> landed on the thing and rolled over, and I had a bone bruise and torn cartilage and had to have it surgically repaired. And so that's not been fun to experience. And because of that, So when I'm watching sports on TV, I can handle sports injuries. But if it involves someone's ankle, I'm going to cover my eyes and bury it in the couch because I cannot handle seeing it. I cringe. I look away. I literally can't. I will cover up the TV screen with my hand because I can't watch it because it just reminds me of how painful it is when it happens. I'm forced to look away. Well, I think in the same way, if we're being honest, there are certain passages of Scripture that we just don't want to look at. We cringe when we think about it. We'd rather look away. We'd rather skip it or skim it. We like the pleasant passages that are full of promises and overwhelming mercy and hope, but the passages that are full of sin and judgment and wrath are not always pleasant to deal with. And by the way, I mean, we talk about this all the time, but it's one of the reasons that we practice what's called sequential expository preaching in the church. We take a book of the Bible and we just work our way through because it forces us to deal with things we probably wouldn't choose to deal with otherwise, right? If I'm just picking a random passage from week to week to preach on, I promise you, I'm probably not going to pick 1 Samuel chapter 4. It's not a pleasant chapter to deal with. It's just not. But here we are. And we need to be sure we don't skim over it or skip it or 
look away from it. Because it's chapters like this that can challenge what we sometimes create these neat packaged ideas about God. And it comes up against those ideas and forces us to look at who God really is, the God of scriptures, the true God. First Samuel chapter 4 is definitely one of these kinds of chapters. The darkness of sin, the indifference of God's people, the death and destruction, the judgment from the hand of God. All of that combines to make it not, not a pleasant chapter to have to deal with necessarily. But we must not, we must not look away. We need to stare at it. We need to look at it square in the face and see what it teaches us about our sovereign God and our own sin-stained hearts. We need to see what it has to say to us. We need to see what it teaches us about the sovereign judgment and wrath of God. We need to see and heed the warnings this passage gives us about the devastating impact of sin in the lives of people. So let's not look away this morning. Let's meditate together over this passage and by God's grace, feel the weight of sin and rebellion and tremble at the thought of facing the sovereign judgment of our sovereign God. That is what this chapter is all about. It is about the judgment of the sovereign God. Chapters two and three have been preparing us for this. It's all been leading up to this moment, all that's been happening in chapters two and three. There are even hints of it in chapter one, but it really comes to the forefront in chapter two. And we're told that the priests, the sons of Eli, Eli being the essentially the high priest and the sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and, and how they were operating in their role as priests, they were literally stealing the sacrifices from God's people. They were either, while it was boiling, while the meat was boiling, they would just jam a fork in the pot and pull out things, uh, parts of the sacrifice that did not belong to them to eat of it and have it for themselves. And if, if that wasn't bad enough, they would go to people before they even got to the altar and forcefully take the sacrifice from them. If the people refused to give it by force, they would remove it from them and go take it for themselves to eat. And then to add sin and rebellion on top of sin and rebellion, they even, as the priest of God, it says in later in chapter 2, that they were laying with the women who were serving at the entrance of the temple. These were wicked and despicable men, and their father Eli did nothing about it. Even though he had every authority to do so, not only as their father, but as their superior in the line of priests. At any moment, he could have removed them. But of course, we find out later in chapter 2 that the reason he did not do so is, one, he was lazy and indifferent, and God said that he honored his sons above him, but he was also eating from their table. He was, it says, fattening himself on the table of the stolen sacrifices. This was a corrupt, evil, wicked leadership in place serving God's people. And so, God tells Eli that he is going to bring his judgment against him. He tells him in chapter 2 that he's going to bring judgment against him. And then last week we saw in chapter 3 that Samuel finally realizes that God is calling for him and speaking to him. And he says, here I am. And the words that, as Nathaniel reminded us of last week, that God has for Samuel is that judgment is on the way. The house of Eli is coming to an end. His sons are going to die on the same day, and they will die by the sword of men. But even in the midst of all this sin and rebellion and judgment, I just want to remind us, even so, 
Even so, what we also see on display is the mercy and patience of God. The first time Hophni and Phinehas forcefully took a sacrifice from someone, they deserved to be struck down dead the first time it happened. That's what they deserved. But year after year after year, it says this carried on. And God and his sovereignty for his good purposes allowed it to carry on. But I'm just mindful of what Peter says to us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He was patient. He gave them every opportunity in the world to repent and stop what they were doing, warning after warning. But of course, eventually that patience ends and they cross the threshold. And so that's why we saw in chapter 2, verse 25, where it says, they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. There was no more patience from God at this point. His patience had come to an end. And so his judgment is now coming. And this is what we see in chapter four. We see the word of the Lord, what he has declared he is going to do coming to pass as he carries out his sovereign judgment on his people. But what I want you to notice in chapter four is that wrath takes two different shapes, something that we would call the passive wrath of God and the active wrath of God. They're both the wrath of God. But in the passive wrath of God, it's where God intentionally chooses not to intervene and allows his people to continue to spiral in the darkness and blindness of their sin, which is what he is doing to Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. And we're going to see how the author of Samuel makes that clear at the beginning of chapter 4. And then, of course, there is the act of wrath of God where he carries out divine punishment and brings death and destruction against sinners. So I want to be sure we see in the passages this morning both the passive wrath of God and the active wrath of God. It may not be pleasant to think about or talk about, but we need to see it in this passage because it's necessary for us to see it so that we don't walk down the same path they did. So it's what 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 6 says to us, talking about a specific Old Testament event, but I think it applies to all of them. 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. This passage is to guard your heart against evil desires. So let us be warned as we meditate on the passive and active wrath of God in this passage. So that's the outline. Number one, The passive wrath of God leaves people in their spiritual blindness. And number two, the active wrath of God brings death and destruction against sinners. So first of all, the passive wrath of God leaves people in their spiritual blindness. Look there with me at the beginning of chapter 4. As we read earlier, chapter 4 begins by telling us that Israel went into battle against the Philistines. And as they went into battle, 4,000 of the men fell in battle. That's a significant number, right? We've heard about the war even in Israel going on now, where in that first invasion, there was, I think it's the number somewhere around 1,400 people killed. This is 4,000. 4,000 men were killed in that battle. And the response I want you to see, I think the key verse I want us to zero in on here in this first section is verse 3. The question that the elders asked there in verse 3, do you see it with me? And when the people came to the camp, 
the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now listen, that is a, that is the right question to ask. They asked the correct question. Even the way they worded it is full of theological truth, right? This is exactly what they should have been asking. This was the exact right viewpoint. You, you, do you notice that with me? They don't say, why did the Philistines defeat us this day? No, what does verse 3 say? What was the question they asked? Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Here are these sinners acknowledging the, the Lord is sovereign, he decides the outcome of battles, right? It's really astonishing in some ways that they even worded the question in this way, right? What a fantastic question. It's also the, the right thing to do to ask the question in the first place, right? To say, let's think about this for a minute. Why, why were we defeated today? Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us? It's exactly what they ought to have done. And in fact, there was a precedent for this. For example, after Joshua leads the people into the promised land, there's the, the well-known story that if you grow up in church, you learned as a child about them marching around the walls of Jericho. And eventually, the last time they do it, that last day, they march around multiple times. They shout out. The walls come crumbling down. They have great victory. But then just a short time later, they decide to continue pushing into other areas. And so they decide to gather a group of the army of a few thousand men to go and attack AI. No, I don't mean artificial intelligence, right? This is not what they're attacking. A city called AI, and they go to attack it. They've just had this overwhelming victory in Jericho. Of course, God is going to have the people of AI just lay down. It's not going to be a problem. But they go and they're defeated in Joshua chapter 7. And it makes no sense. Why did God allow them to be defeated? And so Joshua chapter 7, verse 7, in the book Joshua chapter 7, verse 7, Joshua asked the question, Alas, O Lord, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Why did you bring us here if you're just going to wipe us out when we start doing what you called us to do and taking the land? In other words, he's asking the exact same kind of question the elders were asking in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 3. Why were we defeated today? Why did you bring defeat to us today? But here's a few key differences. First, previous to verse 7, in Joshua chapter 7, he had torn his clothes. There was a spirit of humility and humbleness as he comes before the Lord, crying out to him, asking God the question. It doesn't even seem in chapter 4, verse 3 of 1 Samuel that they're even directing the question to God. They're just generally kind of asking each other, why do you think this happened today? So that's one key difference. But the second key difference is Joshua waits to hear what God has to say. You see, the elders of, of Israel in 1 Samuel 4 don't pause. They don't wait a second. They don't pursue an answer. An answer never comes. They just come up with their own solution. But Joshua, however, when Joshua asked the question, God answered him. And he said, the reason you were defeated today is because there's someone in your midst who, when you went into Jericho, took the devoted things that they were specifically told not to take. And he right now has it and so the story of Joshua carries on in that battle. They figure out who was responsible for that. They find the devoted things in his tent and judgment comes upon him and his family because of it. But because they dealt with sin, God then brings the victory, right? What, what a gift of God's grace that when Joshua asked why, God gave him an answer. 
because there's sin in your midst that you need to deal with. But in 1 Samuel chapter 4, when the question is asked, there is no word from the Lord. He doesn't come. He doesn't tell them why they were defeated that day, though there were clear reasons. They were defeated because they were in sin and darkness and because of the corruption of the elders and the corruption of Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and the priests. There were clear reasons why, but God doesn't even bother to tell them. And not only that, they were so lost in their sin that even though they knew the right question to ask, they didn't even care about listening to the one who could give them the answer, which is exactly why God didn't answer. And the author of Samuel wants to pile on, wants you to see just how rebellious this was on their part. I mean, you have to reach back into the end of chapter 3 that Nathaniel so faithfully preached to us last week. But, but if you just want to flip back to the end of chapter 3, And look there at what the author of Samuel says in verses 19 through 21 of chapter 3. Listen to this with me. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. Pause. Here's Samuel, trustworthy prophet of God. Verse 20. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Let me read that again in case we missed it. And all Israel, all of them, no exceptions from Dan to Beersheba, knew for a fact that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. So if you know this, and you know that none of his words are falling to the ground, when you ask a question like, why did the Lord defeat us that day? What's the most obvious place to find the answer? Somebody, go find Samuel. Maybe somebody could say, was told, but even then, what does chapter 4 verse 1 say? And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. They knew they were in sin. They just didn't care. So they're not pursuing truth. They're not pursuing the light of the truth of what God has to say to them. Nor does God send Samuel to intervene and give them the right answer. He lets them wallow in their sin and darkness. Because remember what chapter 2 verse 25 said. It was the will of the Lord to put Hophni and Phinehas to death. So they have no word from the Lord. They don't care about having a word from the Lord. They come up with their own solution. You see that there in verse 3. They don't wait on a word from the Lord. They don't pursue the Lord. They just immediately decide, it must be because we didn't have the Ark of the Covenant with us. So let us bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So why would they think that the Ark of the Covenant would do such a thing? So just to clarify... Because we don't want to assume any prior biblical knowledge. When this says the word ark, it's not referring to probably the more famous ark, which was Noah's ark, which was a big boat. This is instead referring to what would have been a large kind of rectangular golden box that God instructed Moses to build when they were building the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. This was to be a representative of the presence of God. They carved two cherubim that would sit on top of it inside The Ark of the Covenant is where the original Ten Commandments were to be. The rod of Aaron that that budded and a sample of the manna were to go inside the Ark of the Covenant. When the tabernacle was erected, it was to go inside the Holy of Holies, to be separated from anyone else. Only the high priest could access it, and that only once a year. It was a holy object. No one was to touch it. It was constructed with rings on it so long poles could be put through it so that people could stand at a distance to carry it. It was significant. We should not downplay the significance of the Ark of the Covenant. 
when Joshua was leading the people into the promised land and they carried it, that when those carrying the Ark of the Covenant set foot in the Jordan River, the dry land appeared. When they marched around Jericho, guess what they marched with? The Ark of the Covenant. So I don't want to say that they had no reason to bring the ark there. They, they were looking at what had happened in the past. But the problem was it wasn't the most essential thing they needed to deal with. It was their sin. It was their rebellion against a holy God. And instead of looking inwardly, they looked outwardly. They thought if they could have the appearance of holiness, if they could have the appearance of being God's people, then surely they could twist God's arm into winning their battles and bringing them to victory. And so when the ark comes into the camp, verse 5 tells us that they let out a shout. There's no way we're going to lose now. It doesn't matter how we conduct ourselves. It doesn't matter who we are inwardly. It doesn't matter what the status of our heart is. If the ark is here, we're going to win this battle. No question, no doubt about it. But in the end, of course, all they did was look the part because they had not dealt with the real reason they were defeated. And it wasn't because the ark was absent. It was because a heart for the Lord was absent. Therefore, God and his justice allowed them to continue in their blind deception. In fact, we're even told about the reaction of the Philistines, which I find fascinating. In many ways, verses 6 to 9, the reaction of the Philistines are not necessary for the narrative, right? It could have gone straight to verse 10. So why are we told what the Philistines thought about the ark? They hear the shout, they hear the ark has come to think, well, the, they say gods because they don't have an understanding of the unique oneness of God. And so they say the, the gods have come into the camp. This is the gods that wiped out the Egyptians. We're in trouble now. We're going to have to really stand up and fight. But I, I think the reason it's in here is because what it shows is Israel is thinking just like the nations around them. They're worldly. If a holy relic, if a holy object comes, we're going to win, which is exactly what the Philistines thought. Listen, it is never a good thing for the people of God, for our spiritual decisions to make sense to the watching world. But it made perfect sense to the Philistines. It puts Israel in the category of the world. So in verses 1 through 9, God has intentionally left Israel in darkness, and he was just to do so. He did not intervene. He did not tell them why they had been defeated. He let them remain in darkness in this moment God had already proven himself to be a patient and merciful God. He had given them years and years and years to repent and to change their ways. But now God is done. He's done intervening. And so he's silent. He's quiet. And therefore, Israel acts like the world, believing that what really matters is the external show of religion without regard for their own hearts. And so there's two warnings for us in this. First, Don't ever allow the external trappings of religious practices to drown out the need to examine your own heart. Don't allow the trappings of thinking, man, I I come to church, I attend Bible studies, I go to small groups. None of that saves you. Do you have a heart that trusts in Christ? And it's looking to him as your all-sufficient Savior, a heart that's being transformed by the power of the Spirit. That's what saves you. Don't be like the Israelites and think that all that matters is the appearance of religion. And second, don't presume on God's mercy. We've seen this a number of times already in the first few chapters of 1 Samuel, and now it comes to a head in chapter 4. God is patient. God is merciful. God is long-suffering, but he is not patient forever, both in your individual life and in history. 
There will come a day when God's patience with this world will come to an end and Jesus will come and he will bring his judgment. And we don't know when that day will be. But what 1 Samuel chapters 2 and 3 and 4 also say to us is we don't know when the day will be for us individually either. There is a point when God just gives people over to their sin. How do I know that? Because he did it to Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. He said, I'm done. 225, they did not listen to the voice of their father because it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. God was done with his people. He didn't bother to answer their question. Why, why this defeat today? Just stay in your darkness. God is merciful and anyone at any moment can cry out to him for mercy. And he's there waiting and ready to welcome you at any moment. But it is also true that you can continue in sin for so long to where you will never make that cry. Feel the weight of that. And if you have not cried out to the Lord for mercy and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and if you're not bearing the fruit of the evidence of that in your life, then repent today and come to him in faith. His mercy is not forever. It is long. It is patient. It is not eternal. The passive wrath of God allowed them to continue in their spiritual blindness, but it wasn't only that. We also see the act of wrath of God bringing death and destruction against sinners. You see this beginning in verse 10. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. Just pause there. 4,000 was a huge number. 30,000 is an astronomical number, especially for their population. 30,000 people in one battle fell. It was a very great slaughter. Verse 11, and the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died just as God said they would. He said they're going to die on the same day by the sword of men. Guess what happened? They died on the same day by the sword of men. Now here's where I want you to see the sovereign hand of God at work orchestrating these events moment by moment. He is sovereign over nations. He is sovereign over armies. He is the Lord of hosts. He is sovereign over battles and what occurs. Why were Eli's sons, why were Hophni and Phinehas at the battle to begin with? Priests don't go to war. Well, what did the end of verse 4 tell us? And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. In God's sovereignty, he had his people sinfully, wrongly, Call for the Ark of the Covenant to go with them into battle. Why? To Partly why? To get Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, on the battlefield so that he could strike them down. That's why God tells us what he tells us in verse 4. God will bring his judgment and nothing will stand in the way. He will get people where they need to be to execute his judgment and to fulfill the word that he has said. He said, Hophni and Phinehas are going to fall on the same day by the sword of men, so I'm going to be sure they're on the battlefield. And he does exactly what he said he was going to do. And then, of course, the man comes and he tells Eli what has happened. Verse 15 tells us that Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. This has been a progression for Eli. He slowly is losing his sight as we move through these first chapters of 1 Samuel. And we've said this, and I just remind you that the physical descriptions of Eli are meant to tell us about spiritual realities of Eli. He is physically blind, but it's also telling us that he is spiritually blind. It's now gone, done for. He has no spiritual sense any longer. God has given him over to his sin. 
And the messenger comes and he asks him, how did it go, my son? Verse 17, the messenger tells him, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there's been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. And the author of Samuel in verse 18 makes clear the news that overwhelmed Eli was not the news of his sons. It was the news of the ark. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and what? Heavy. We learned earlier, chapters two in particular, that Eli had fattened himself on the wicked, evil, rebellious, stolen sacrifices of the people. He was weighing himself down. That word for weight, right? It's where the word glory comes from. He was pouring the glory on himself. He was weighing himself down. And Eli's ultimate undoing, God brought Eli's sins on himself in a direct way. And so the weight that he brought on himself in his sin is what killed him. He was blind and old and heavy. And because of that, he fell over and his neck was broken and he died. This is not, we're not told this because it's circumstantial. We're told this because we are to assume rightly that God is the one who did this. This is now God fulfilling his word of judgment on Eli, on his house, doing exactly what he said he would do and bringing his wrath against sinners. Because Eli refused to rebuke his sons, because Eli honored his sons above God. Therefore, the just, righteous wrath of God has come upon Eli. And then we find out that the death and destruction of that day were too much for Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas. You see that there in verse 19. She's pregnant and about to give birth, and she's so overwhelmed with the news of the death of her husband, with the death of her father-in-law, with the death of her brother-in-law, with the defeat of Israel, with the, the ark now being taken away. Her birth pains came upon her, and she ultimately died in childbirth. And they tried to console her by saying, don't be afraid, you have a son. And I think Phineas' wife in this, in this moment just knows, really, what difference does it make? The curse of God is on my family because of Eli, Hophni, and Phineas. And so she names her son Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God had been captured and taken away into the land of the Philistines. You see, God uses this, the words of this woman to give his final declaration over that day, the final declaration over the descendants of Eli. The final declaration over the last descendant of Eli is what? The glory of God has departed. That's the name he carries. And the glory of God had departed because the ark has now been taken in to exile in the land of the Philistines. The glory of the Lord left his people. Of course, it wasn't because of the ark. But the Lord did, in fact, use the ark to demonstrate that he had, in fact, left. He had left them to themselves, and he had departed as he brought his wrath upon them. So the end result of Eli's sin and refusal to repent and the sin of his sons is the death and destruction of the nation. But here's what's odd. God still didn't give them what they fully deserved. When Moses was leading the people to the edge of the promised land, of course, he was not allowed to go in. He told them, if you come into this land and you fail to live by the law of God, if you fail to give him glory, if you fail to obey him, if you fail to worship him, then you will be removed from this land. And of course, down the road, that's eventually what happens to Israel, but it has not happened yet. He does not give them what they deserved Yet, even though he brought them judgment and wrath in the moment of this death and destruction. And here's what's really fascinating. When it says the glory has departed from Israel, 
The ark of God has been captured. It's the same sense of that the ark of God has been taken into exile. And what that says to us is that God allowed himself to be exiled instead of his people. He allowed himself to be exiled instead of his people. And we will see next week in chapter 5 how the symbolic presence of God in the ark brings death and destruction to the Philistines. He allows himself to be exiled and defeats the enemies of God's people on his own. Look, this is the gospel on display even at the end of this seemingly hopeless chapter that just as God allowed himself to be taken into exile in a symbolic sense by the ark being taken into the land of the enemy, Jesus Christ himself came and dwelt among us and he allowed himself to take our sins on himself and to be exiled on the cross. And he bore the death and destruction that you deserved and that I deserved. So that when we look at a passage like this and we say the passive and the active wrath of God on sinners is just and right. It's what they deserve. It's what you deserve. It's what I deserve. But because Jesus came and stood in our place, he took it on himself so that God remains just and can justify us and declare us righteous at the same time. So that we can read a chapter like chapter 4 and know this is what we also deserve. We deserve to be left in darkness with no word from God coming to us. We deserve to be slaughtered on the battlefield. We deserve to be separated from God and for the glory of God to leave us and to be separated from him for all eternity, being punished and suffering under his eternal wrath in hell. That is right and just. But God sent Jesus to take on flesh so that we could become one with him so that he could absorb the wrath we deserved and find ourselves forgiven and co-heirs with Christ. It is unspeakable mercy. And so I just remind all of us today, don't delay turning to Christ in faith. None of us, if we have not trusted in Christ, deserve another day. Don't let another day go without turning to him in faith. And I also say to us who are trusting in Jesus, Don't ignore the lack of fruit in your life. Don't think because you made the decision when you were 10 years old, but yet there's no evidence that you're walking with Jesus. Don't assume that you actually did anything when you were 10 years old. Be warned. Those who belong to Christ are transformed by Christ. It doesn't mean you'll be sin-free. It doesn't mean you will be perfect, but it does mean that you should see the fruit of the power of the Spirit at work within you. So you also do not delay. Don't dabble in religion. Don't dabble with church attendance while you are rebelling against God in your personal life. And for all of us who only by God's grace do see the fruit of the gospel at work within us, spend every day looking to the cross and giving Jesus all the glory and praise he deserves for rescuing you from the wrath you deserve. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your mercy and your grace. You are kind to us. Father, we are thankful for your patience and long-suffering. Father, we're thankful that you brought the good news of the gospel to our lives, whether it be through a friend or a random person on the street or a coworker or our parents or a family member. We are thankful that you have rescued us, that you didn't allow us to continue in the darkness of our rebellion and sin, but instead you awakened us. You removed our heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh. You you took the blinders off our eyes and gave us sight that we might see the glories of Christ. We don't deserve it, and we thank you for your mercy and grace to us. 
And so, Father, I pray that you would be at work in us, bringing about the fruit of the gospel in our life, that you may be glorified. And let us be warned so that we do not practice the evil that the leaders of Israel did in 1 Samuel chapter 4. I pray that you use this passage to guard our hearts and to help us to walk, to run after Christ. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.